Thanks very much. I'm really excited to present to the UBVO community, as always. It's always an immense privilege and uh, pleasure to share and think with this community of scholars. And certainly my time as a student and now as a fellow in the UBVO network has been really formative for me in learning how to do rigorous interdisciplinary work and foster dialogue between the disciplines of public health, anthropology and beyond. Today, I'm, I'm taking the opportunity to introduce a project that I've been working on, that I will be working on for the next couple of years. Uh, and this is part of a UKRI Future Leaders Fellowship, which has just kicked off as of a week ago. And I'm talking to you today at the very outset of the project. So unfortunately, I'm not going to be sharing findings with you, um, but rather I'm introducing the project as a means of enfolding you in a conversation going forward. Because as I'm going to illustrate in this talk, this is an ambitious project that's going to require a lot of critical interdisciplinary thinking along the way. I hope you don't mind that I'm taking this opportunity to really onboard all of you as uh, advisors and interlocutors going forward. I gave today's talk the title, Preconception Interventions, The Future of Obesity Prevention Strategy. And this question is certainly one of the questions that animates my new project. It's my contention that answering this question is going to require a lot of interdisciplinary thinking. So I added a subtitle to reflect that. And I'll spend some time today on questions around genuine interdisciplinarity and how it might be approached. But I'll start by introducing the project itself, which is called Trajectories. I'll talk to the basis for the project and the blueprint going forward, and then uh, turn to thinking about interdisciplinarity. Let's start at the macro level. I don't need to belabor the point in this audience that for all of our focus on the social determinants of health in the last few decades, inequities in health outcomes persist. Here we have the example of the risk of dying from a non-communicable disease, or NCD, taken from the Lancet's 2018 uh, NCD countdown. And this is, of course, a pre-COVID map, but it will only have been compounded by the pandemic, which has amplified the need for our attention to what we call in COVID times pre-existing conditions. And as Alondra Nelson, a renowned STS scholar and the new deputy director for science and society in the Biden administration has recently noted, the pandemic has confirmed what we know but have failed to address about social inequality. So as you can see from the map, NCD risk is unequally distributed across the globe. And in the region where I work in South Africa, mortality from NCDs is particularly high. Now, as we, we all know, there's been a multi-pronged approach to addressing NCDs in the 21st century. But one shift that has animated my work for some time is the turn to life course approaches to understanding NCD risk as modifiable at key points specifically pregnancy and early childhood. And that's illustrated by this kind of small red triangle in the left-hand uh, side of this graph. Gestation and infancy have been framed as critical periods of plasticity. And in the last 20 years or so, this logic has increasingly animated how and when we might intervene to mitigate NCD risk in adulthood. And as the diagram illustrates, a life course thinking is concerned with intervention during this point of maximum plasticity. Intervening somewhat later may still have some effect, and later intervention may be useful in particularly vulnerable groups. But certainly the notion that we should flatten the curve, uh, to use a term that we've all become familiar with, uh, has certainly been a, a core focus of a particular group of life course scientists for the last few decades. 
And many of you will be familiar with this. Of course, I'm referring to the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease or DOHAD research field, which has expanded significantly in the last few decades. This audience will recognize the work of David Barker and colleagues in the 1980s who demonstrated an association between low birth weights and cardiovascular disease in adulthood, which led to a large number of similar studies globally that confirmed that association. And since that time, DOHAD as a field has, has formalized, uh, its society is now just over 10 years old, and there have been some key points of, of inquiry for DOHAD in this time. One is the focus on um, early life nutrition and the impact on obesity risk and NCD risk in later life. Uh, another is thinking about stress in the early life period and potential mental health impact. And finally, there's been some work on teratogens and toxins in the early life period. My own prior work has been focused on the notion that early life nutrition interventions have impact on later risk of obesity and NCDs. For the last 10 years or so, DOA has focused obesity prevention strategy around behavioral interventions in pregnancy in particular, based on the idea that parental nutrition and activity may be able to, to impact on obesity risk in, in offspring. Accompanying this, there was quite a successful campaign to focus on what is called the first thousand days of life, period from conception to the age of two years. And this campaign was the object of my, my PhD research. So we can come back to thinking about that a bit more if we, if we would like. But for now, um, I'd like to move us on in terms of how that story has developed. And there are two key points here. The, the first is that the empirical epidemiological work looking at behavioral interventions in pregnancy hasn't been hugely conclusive. We have both the upbeat trial as well as the limit trial, which tested uh, behavioral interventions in pregnancy for gestational diabetes uh, and other markers for potential childhood obesity. And really the uh, evidence was inconclusive, leading to the thought that perhaps pregnancy is too little, too late. And then at the same time, there's been a lot of work done by anthropologists and SDS scholars, many of whom are associated with the UBVO, thinking about what the focus on pregnancy and childhood has meant for notions of responsibility, and particularly potentially gendered and racialized discourses of responsibility that have accompanied some of these campaigns. And the Thousand Days logo here is, of course, a very good illustration of this. Uh, we have a, a single white female body as the ideal agent, um, the responsible agents, and we could spend a lot of time discussing the imagery that's accompanied this, these campaigns and the tropes of vulnerability and responsibility that they've potentially reinforced. In summary, really, um, life course frameworks were meant to be a way to attend to the social determinants of health in an intergenerational framework, but in some cases have really helped to reinforce the very social structures we would hope to have alleviated. And we haven't had much luck with pregnancy interventions. So where to from here? The scientific project has moved on to consider whether a preconception intervention might be more effective. As the Lancet preconception series stated in 2018, perhaps we should intervene before the beginning. And the enthusiasm for preconception as a point of intervention is well captured in Public Health England's uh, health promotion materials. You may notice in the graphic on the left here that um, preconception and pregnancy have been somewhat rolled into one. And while Public Health England have since corrected this image to reflect that preconception and pregnancy are in fact distinct stages, the initial conflation of these two uh, in recent years is, is perhaps telling as to how, how much enthusiasm there is for them. There's a revived interest in intervening before conception. 
And it is this idea that underpins the Healthy Early Life Trajectories Initiative, or HEALTHY, the first global study that will test a preconception intervention for its possible intergenerational impact. As you can see here, the HEALTHY cohorts are in Canada, India, China, and South Africa, where I work. The crucial point here is that um, HEALTHY is a, a novel trial design. It's a preconception intervention trial. So our intervention trials in pregnancy didn't give us much conclusive evidence. And the bulk of, of other work that has informed DOHAD has been associational studies. So there's a huge investments in the idea that this intervention study is going to offer something to the DOHAD evidence base. But you may well ask, well, what does preconception mean? And how is that operationalized? And this is something that I've written about with Maurizio Maloney quite recently. And the key point here is that new categories for intervention are being formalized. And as social scientists and perhaps feminist scholars, we should be concerned and interested to study the effects of this and to work with our colleagues in devising interventions so that they don't reinvent gender discourses of responsibility, but instead utilize this opportunity to think intergenerationally to embed social justice in public health policies. And this is where my project Trajectories Partnership with Healthy comes in. This is really the, the aim. Let's look in depth at the Healthy trial in South Africa. It is hosted by the Developmental Pathways for Health Unit at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, where I'm also affiliated. The trial setting is Soweto, Johannesburg. The aim is to recruit around 6,800 women aged 18 to 25 which statistically for this age group will mean around 1,500 pregnancies in the trial period. Trials recruited 10% of its population, uh, trial population to date, and it will be a complex public health intervention. So it includes micronutrient supplementation and a suite of behavior change interventions concerning diet, lifestyle factors such as sleep, screen time, exercise, and mental health promotion. The trial slogan, to kind of give you a flavor of what it's capturing, is live your best life. The primary outcome of the trial is child adiposity at age five as a marker for childhood obesity. And then there are secondary outcomes related to early childhood development. So let me give you a bit more of a sense of the context in which this trial is taking place. As some of you may know, Soweto is the largest township in South Africa. It is 200 square kilometers with a population of 1.3 million people. So high density living, but quite heterogeneous uh, mixture of uh, brick housing and more informal housing. And Soweto is really the historical product of apartheid legislation that segregated racial groups in South Africa. And so the socioeconomic profile of the township and household structure is characterized by legacies of structural racism and poverty, a migrant labor system for mining in the high fault, and persistently high rates of racialized inequality in the democratic era. As you can see in this recent piece from the NY Times, uh, Soweto in many, kind of even in the global imagination, encapsulates the paradoxes of South Africa. Soweto is both a story of successful social mobility for a burgeoning middle class, and a story of ongoing hardship for many more people. For the health profile of Soweto and South Africa more broadly, this translates into what has been termed the quadruple burden, some of the highest rates of HIV and its opportunistic infections in the world, high rates of trauma and gender-based violence, a dual burden of under and over nutrition and concomitant non-communicable disease. The quadruple burden in its initial formulation did not include mental health, which I've tacked on here because this is now, of course, getting the attention it also deserves in this context. 
But to give you an idea about the, the woman who will be enrolled in the HALTI trial, here's a snapshot of antenatal data from Soweto. Antenatal data still being one of the indices we use in South Africa for population prevalence. And you can see that one in three women is HIV positive, one in three scores highly on the stress and depression risk score, and two thirds of women are overweight or obese. In terms of infants, 12% are born with a low birth weight. For comparison, in high income settings, this is between five and 7%, and uh, one in five children is stunted, which is a very high prevalence for a middle income country. When HALTI, the intervention, when the intervention was piloted, and just to remind you, this is a behavior change intervention designed to get women to think about diet, exercise, and lifestyle issues. The pilot focus work done unsurprisingly revealed that women are concerned less with questions around maintaining a so-called healthy lifestyle and more concerned with trying to secure employment and educational opportunities, citing their circumstances as constrained by poverty, unemployment, limited access to healthy food or safe opportunities for exercise, as well as the challenges of living with HIV for many of them. It's unsurprising that initial work with this cohort has found that these challenges translate into and are worsened by material and relational difficulties in participants' home environments, including precarity, gender conflicts, and intergenerational conflict. So the HALTI trial has much to contend with. It presents this really important opportunity to investigate whether there is sufficient evidence for targeting preconception as an important window in um, life course interventions. But there's another opportunity here, which is that by virtue of the length of this trial, which will go on for at least 10 years, we have an opportunity to really deepen our understanding of all these other mediating factors which account for different life trajectories. But there are also significant challenges to this trial. We have an expanded trial timeframe beyond even what a birth cohort would have done in the past, a multi-component intervention, and then this danger that we kind of fall into an old trope of repeating a gendered approach that burdens women with the burden of responsibility for future health outcomes. Now, social science work on preconception interventions elsewhere has illustrated how a focus on preconception can expand the biomedicalization of women's bodies. It may assume heteronormative definitions for sex, family, and care. In all likelihood, excludes men and other caregivers from research and intervention, and can in, in some way do what Miranda Wagner has described as exhorting women to engage in what she calls anticipatory motherhood. Miranda Wagner cautions in her work in the US that we should not portray motherhood as the default social and clinical strategy in women's healthcare. And I, I would certainly agree with that, that I think that we should avoid that. And as I've written with Maurizio Maloney, the danger here as well is that we revert to um, older frameworks which typically connect health with moral disciplining and in a, in a highly individualized way. Given this, you might ask, well, why partner with a preconception trial? And the answer would be that DOHAD is a very young research field. And there is at present quite important opportunity here in the form of an openness to collaborative thinking, which the Trajectories Healthy Partnership uh, will hopefully exemplify. So to illustrate this, let me quote this editorial from the Dohad Society's past and presidents, uh, Mark Hansen, Lucilla Poston, and Peter Gluck. This editorial is about translating Dohad science to policy. And the authors make the point that evidence that does not draw on interdisciplinary perspectives, including that of social scientists, is also less likely to have policy impact. And they use this really great phrase, transdisciplinary evidence synthesis, 
to describe what is going to be required. The authors lament that Doha has not been adequately translated to health policy, and they see this as a question of inadequate framing and conveying of the message. And they devote some time to thinking about the kind of evidence that we will be required. Evidence of a problem, they state, is usually not helpful unless there is a potential, practical, usable, and acceptable solution available. And this is partly why I would say we've often had a return to accessible categories of intervention that are often gendered, raced, or classed. But I think we'll all agree that that is not the short circuit solution that we are looking for. Further, the authors argue that if evidence is contestable, it will have little impact. And this is why there is this impetus in Dohad to transition from observational to interventional studies. This is, of course, the, the promise of healthy. So the crucial question here is how we mobilize the critical work we do as social scientists in our collaboration with life course scientists. And I'd like to suggest that two routes into this problem are considering the constitution of evidence in Dohad research and the framing and communication of the Dohad message. And as I've outlined, these are two of the major tension points in the field. And teaming up with Dohad scientists in terms of how they navigate this in order to make science legible to policymakers and other publics would seem to be an important route in understanding how and why certain narratives might come to dominate over others. Now, finally, the Dohad presidents call for a compelling frame or platform for Dohad. And here they're drawing on an analysis of achievements of other global health networks, noting that the most effective global health policies usually have a simple moral or ethical platform, which is hard to ignore or countermand. For me, the honesty of this editorial is entirely refreshing, given its frankness for the need for one, compelling evidence, but two, also a compelling narrative. And I highlight this because it marks, at least to my mind, quite a radical departure from how a group of high-level scientists such as these might have written this uh, editorial 10 years ago. One might say that the Dohat scientists themselves are shifting from matters of fact to matters of concern, to use a literarian phrase. And I'm really curious to explore what this means for how social scientists contribute to the production of knowledge in the Dohat field. Now, Latour also cautioned that history changes quickly and that there is no greater intellectual crime than to address with the equipment of an older period, the challenges of the present. And I would like to suggest that for Dohad, a field now entering what might be its thorny adolescence, it is time for the kind of experimental entanglements, to use a lovely phrase from Felicity Callard and Des Fitzgerald, and to really reach for this kind of critical feminist praxis of life course sciences that colleagues like Megan Warren advocate. Dohad as a field needs to shift to intervention studies, given our hierarchies of evidence, but to succeed here, it is also going to need to integrate social science approaches. And here, I'm not referring to the ad and anthropologist model that might have characterized anthropologists' engagements with clinical trials in the past, but rather, I'm interested in the wholesale remaking of research infrastructures where diverse disciplinary perspectives are given equal standing. And I think this pertains especially to complex public health interventions where it's harder to understand nonlinear causality. It's more difficult to understand the relationship between the context and the intervention. And there's also just a need to understand the other stuff that goes on in the background and potentially shapes the trial outcome. As I've said, there's acknowledgement that social science input is needed, but also that remaking research infrastructures takes time and commitment. 
And there are specific skills that social scientists bring to the table, including continually testing assumptions and frameworks, because these count and they are never value neutral, maintaining complexity in the face of this temptation to reach for the silver bullet, retaining sensitivity to socio-political and historical context, and acting as the broker for new experimental forms of engagement with the communities of actors involved. And so ultimately, this is the opportunity for Doham to be a science for social justice, to really embed those values and make explicit a justice framework in drafting aims, conducting research, and presenting and communicating findings. And this isn't a new point. Megan Warren and other colleagues have spoken particularly powerfully to this idea, and it's a goal that has been animating this conversation for some time. So the question now is how does one operationalize this? And this is what Trajectories partnering with Halti is going to try to do. And it does so in two work packages, one we might call conceptual and one we might call methodological. So the first work package we've called the social life of a preconception trial. And here we will be using methods from anthropology and bioethics to think about institutions, networks, ideas, practices that are at work here to understand what it means to start preconception and how we can use this approach in ways that might promote rather than undermine equity. So here we'll be working with everyone involved in running the trial from the WHO to the community healthcare workers on the ground. And this is really about continually foregrounding, documenting and analyzing the forms of structural and discursive power that either prevent or promote a commitment to principles of equity and justice in knowledge production in the course of this trial. And then our second work package we've called Tracing Our Trajectories. And this will be a five-year qualitative longitudinal study with 60 of the healthy participants, these women who are recruited aged 18 to 25. Now, here we will be using participatory methodologies that center the participants as stakeholders to ensure that the policy recommendations that are eventually made on the basis of this trial are maximally responsive to local context. And this will take a really broad remit. Healthy participants are the, the women um, themselves, but this component will seek to expand the lens of the trial to understand these participants in their social worlds, their close relations, their life circumstances, what else is going on around them. And the aim here is that the activities and direction that this work takes is participant-led. We therefore include a range of methodologies, uh, including um, a documentary filmmaker who has quite a lot of experience in this kind of work. And because the work here is participant-led, part of the aim here is simply to tell stories that recenter people and their priorities, aspirations, and ideas as a way of also pushing back against the possibility that the preconception frame ends up evacuating the subject from view. And here I've shared an artwork by Mary Sabande, an acclaimed Johannesburg-based artist, whose work does this, continually pushes back and plays with the stereotypes of women, and in particular with the stereotypes of black South African women. And her work conjures so much that is left out of the frame, including history, the visible and the invisible, labor, the spiritual, the magical, ritual, fantasy, or the supernatural. As is also somewhat of a tradition in the UBVO, I'm presenting this artwork to you not only as an aside, so that you might go and check out Mary Sabanda's work, which is really, really great, but also as a way into thinking about what might manifest when flexibility and creativity is allowed to take precedent in a project. 
So a question posed to me um, in a presentation I gave earlier this week in another audience was whether my project uh, concerns the kind of routine process evaluation that clinical trials require and which are frequently performed by qualitative health researchers. And this is explicitly not part of that. There are already, already a wonderful team of qualitative researchers employed by Healthy who will be doing that work. And so trajectories has significant flexibility in how it complements the trial. Let's return to the initial question. Our audience had hoped that we might address this in the course of the talk. Are preconception interventions the future for obesity prevention strategy? And the answer, which is always not very always dissatisfying, is it will depend. Of course, it will be interesting to see what the healthy trial offers in terms of its epidemiological findings, but I think the utility of the preconception frame is also going to hinge on whether we can harness it to reflect a broader set of social concerns that do not center on women of reproductive age in isolation or as the target of individual intervention. So the hard work now is how one builds an evidence base that centers justice and equity and thinks more collectively. As I said at the outset, I'm really sorry that I don't have findings to share with you as yet. Rather, what I'm engaging in here is something of a crowdsourcing exercise, because I know that there's a wealth of expertise in this unit that crisscrosses many disciplines. And so while I encourage questions, um, I'm also reaching out in the discussion time for everyone to share past experiences with these kinds of experimental entanglements, as well as experience of participant-led research. And I really thank you for the opportunity to have shared this with you, for learning from all of you as I embark on what is going to be an exciting and daunting project. Lastly, I'll just thank the numerous people who have contributed to getting this work funded and the team who continue to support it going forward. Thank you.